come stop and take a trip down on my block Where you see hidden potential, young minds sharper than Ginsu And ain't afraid to speak their mind if they got something against you We standing with you, we tackle issues like civic pride Hate will cease to exist, let's put our differences aside From my side to your side, from Dutchtown to Southside From Penrose to Northside, from Benton Park to Old North to West End to West Side We bless when we step out, we stand down, rise up, stand together, wise up this is Stitchcast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. Our Stitchcast sits down with Angela De Silva to discuss the preservation of local history through organizing. In this special, the Why of My City edition of Stitchcast Studio. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches. As what I want to know is because we found out about Mr. Silva through the Mary Meacham crossing. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that and how you discovered it and what it is today? Yeah, um, I didn't discover it. Uh, Dr. Chris Zapalak, who at that time would, was uh, with DNR, she discovered it. But she brought it to Grace Hill, and that was the AmeriCorps program that I was attached to by the federal government. And we decided to take it public. She was working on another project, happened to run across a note in a file and followed up on it. And she was you know, still doing research um, 10 years later. But what we refer to is an event that happened on May the 21st, 1855. Nine slaves belonging to prominent St. Louisans were told by Mary Meacham to meet there on the river at what is known as the Bissell Ferry Landing. Now this was the farmer's crossing into Illinois. Um, if I had a load of hay or a load of pigs that I needed to get to market, um, say in Alton, I didn't come downtown where the river boats were and where people were to cross the river. I went up the river to Bissell Point to be able to, uh, to cross over there. It was very, very rural at the time. And so that particular night, nine slaves were standing there because Mary Meacham had told them that the abolitionists in Alton, Illinois would be sending a boat to get them across the river to the free black community of Venice, Illinois. They were told once they landed on the Illinois shore, nobody was gonna bother them, um, but to keep the run through the village to the plank road where the wagons would be hidden. Um, as eight slaves are standing there in the darkness, there is uh, a male slave that came out of uh, nowhere um, and asked him what they were doing there. And they said they were waiting for a boat to get across the river, and he said, good, me too. So um, as when the skiff, which is a small rowboat, arrived, the abolitionists hadn't planned for so many enslaved to be standing there. So only five people could be get in the first load to be rowed across the river, and that left four on the Missouri side. When it landed um, on the Illinois side, they started to run like they were told, but what they did not know is their plan had been found out by the sheriff of St. Louis, some of the owners and deputies that were lying in ambush for them. Once they landed on the shore, uh, they started shooting at them to trap them by the river. But what the sheriff didn't know is that there were four enslaved on the Missouri side who were watching all of this. So when the events of the night are over, five enslaved are recaptured, brought back to Missouri. 
Out of the enslaved that are brought back to, to Missouri was a woman by the name of Esther. And Esther was a maid at the Henry Shaw's downtown mansion. He had told her a couple of days before that he had sold her to a cousin of his in Vicksburg, Mississippi, who was already on his way mm. to come and get her. She asked what was going to happen to her two children. Henry Shaw told her, you're going alone. So she contacted Mary Meacham. And Mary Meacham, we believe this was the impetus to arrange the entire escape. Though um, when she is brought back, she is taken to Bernard M. Lynch's slave pen. Now, most people you know, will tell you, especially white and black in St. Louis, that, oh, all the slaves were sold down on the courthouse steps. Not so, okay? We had four freestanding slave markets in St. Louis, okay? Four. And Bernard M. Lynch was the largest. And his slave pen is somewhere uh, under where Old Bush Stadium was. So um, she is taken and put in jail, jail there. Her two children are taken out to Tower Grove, his country estate, which is Tower Grove Park, as we all know now. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, let me back up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fourth person that's brought back from Illinois who was actually a male slave owned by Sheriff Maddox himself. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I believe that that had to be the weak link in this. Maybe Sheriff Maddox didn't trust him. Maybe he had him, was having him followed. We have no idea. But he too tried to run that night. And then the fifth person that's brought back is another male slave who was owned by a Mr. Levy, which was the largest livery stable owner in the city. So we don't know how Sheriff Maddox dealt with his slave when he got them back. And we don't know what Mr. Levy did either. But of the four slaves are standing on the Missouri side, what's interesting is that there were two mulatto males, one 16, one 19, that were standing there waiting. But here's the, this is incredible to me. They had escaped from Tower Grove and had made it through the city by themselves to that point on the river. Now that's incredible to me. 16 and 19. We know what they look like. We know because the 16-year-old had a scar that ran on the left side of his face from his ear underneath his chin. We know the clothes that they were wearing when they ran away and they only had one other suit of clothes with them. Okay. Henry Shaw offered a heck of amount of money for these two mulatto males. Third person that was standing there on the Missouri shore was a middle-aged woman, um, which I call Lila. Uh, she was a cook at a downtown hotel. That's all the, the captured um, could tell the sheriff. Um, they knew that she worked downtown. And of course, the fourth person on the Missouri side was that voice in the darkness who saw everything happen and he melted back into the night. It was so dark that night that the enslaved said you couldn't see the hand in front of you. Now, when the shooting occurred on the Illinois side, there was a free black man named Freeman who was the boat skipper, if you will. He was the one who brought the boat and that was his job literally to patrol the river looking for slaves who needed to be caught. He was injured um, that night by a bullet. Now, one new, a couple of newspapers said he died from his injuries. Others said he did not. Okay, so we're not exactly sure, and you have to understand the bias of which reporting was done during that time. If you were a pro-slavery newspaper, yeah, you had him dead, okay? But if not, 
He didn't. So that's what I'm saying. You have to take this all in with a grain of salt. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You already know what time it is. Time for another StitchCast Studio Arts Interlude. That's right. We about to pick the city up. This week, we have a Story Stitch's original song entitled, Will They Remember? A while ago, I went strolling with a friend down some back streets. I thought that he was happy till he stopped and he asked me, what is the why of my city? Immediately, I thought, what a weird way to phrase a question. Pretending I didn't know what he meant when he said it, he unimpressed sighs and repeats himself, what is the why of my city? If we were to jump forward a thousand years, what would they say about my city if my city was no longer here? Would they remember Jackie Joyner, Chuck Berry, Red Fox, Maya Angelou, Dick Gregory, Miles Davis, Dred Scott? Would they remember how quickly bodies filled our cemeteries? Or remember that our city birthed legends because our city is legendary? Will they remember? The struggle that kept my people in the slums or that my people use that very struggle to overcome. My friend thinks I'm a therapist. He's depressed and depression is more deceptive than appearances. Appearances can be deceiving and friends can be needy and friends can be greedy. My friend tends to meet me at the corner of broke and brokenness. He reminds me for a while what it's like to feel his hopelessness before taking a break from that to remind me of how alone he is and homie is a soldier. But say lately he done had this helpless feeling, this nervous wreck, unprotected feeling. He can't even help it feeling helpless feeling and I can't help but feel it. He says I used to be stronger than I am now. I fought harder, ran longer. When I had to stand my ground, I always stood taller than I stand now. It's very rare that I stand now. Don't want to stand out And as I looked at his hopeless face I saw the willingness to stay in a broken place I thought, what would Rosa say? She'd probably tell you to stand up Tell you to stand out That sometimes the best way to stand up is to sit down And would you listen? Or did you forget that we come from a long line of warriors? It is not pressure, but what we do with it that defines us. A cold unmind is mindless. It's pressure that makes diamonds and you are a diamond. So the next time you're stressed or you're scared or you're tired and you're about to give up, remember the fight is for the fighters and for all of your talk of love for Maya. If you were the caged bird, would it still sing? Because we are at war with injustice and we have no place for a dreamer who is too afraid to dream. They're not good for anything but the ones that are unafraid to dream. They're remembered as kings. And they're remembered as queens. Thank you. Tower Grove itself, and if you go now to the Missouri Botanical Gardens website, it is loaded with every fact and every slave that Henry Shaw taught. But I want to tell you something. This will be our 21st year of commemorating, venerating this site. And I'm going to tell you truly, you are young and I am old. You need to take my place. I have fought every institution in this city to tell this story and to finally make them face the truth, the truth of what went on here. Okay.
okay? So you, being young, need to know your history. You need to pass it on. Just like the Jews say, don't forget us, okay? It cannot be. So we have used the Mary Meacham site um, for the first 10 years. We were paralleling, uh, we talked purely about slavery, and each year there's a play that is written to correspond with some aspect of slavery. And then in 2011, it was the Great War. Now we start talking about the Civil War and really focusing on the Civil War in St. Louis. Um, you may not know that St. Louis was occupied by the Union Army. The Union Army um, had neighbors spying on neighbors. You could have just been seen downtown talking to someone that the Union Army was watching who was pro-Confederate, and you could find yourself in jail. It was really, when they say brother versus brother, it was intense. Intense, especially here. But now I bring up the Civil War to, to get back to Mary Meacham. Um, in 1854, uh, a year before this event took place, John Mary Meacham on a Sunday morning while delivering a sermon dropped dead, okay? Wow. A massive heart attack. Um, Mary, not having his resources, and what I mean by that is he was a cooper by skill. Now, a cooper, if you can remember, you've ever seen him in museums, wooden stave barrels with metal rings is holding this all together, okay? Somebody has to bend that metal, and that's called a cooper, okay? John Barry Meacham, in his factory down on the riverfront, his barrels were so tight they said you could ship pickles and juice from St. Louis to New York and not one drop leak out. Now that's intense, okay? So his barrels, he, he was making money. When he was older, um, he got about 49, he got the call from God to become a minister. Uh, he had been raised by his white masters in the Presbyterian church, and when he went to them, they go, uh-uh, no way are we ever going to ordain uh, a black man, okay? So he went to the Methodist, pretty much got the same story. But there was a certain riding Baptist minister who said, meet me down in the river, uh, baptized in an apostolic tradition, and this is why the first black church west of the Mississippi is a Baptist church. It didn't turn out to be Presbyterian because of their own racism, whatever, okay? And so um, in order for John Barry Meacham to create the first black church west of the Mississippi, a petition had to be filed with the Missouri legislature because on the books at that time, you can be arrested for just three people standing there. And if nobody white is over, overseeing you, you're in trouble, okay? So in order for this church to happen, he um, went to the Missouri legislature. Missouri legislature said, fine, you have to sign a petition signed by 50 white people that at least four of them would be in attendance for every Sunday service, which is okay which is okay, There's, it's all got to work around because the 50 white people that signed a position were all abolitionists and anti-slavery people, okay? It's a workaround, all right? So um, in his congregation, when he found out that maybe a congregant or a congregant fam member, a family member was being sold, 
this abolitionist group would kick in, okay, and they would buy that person. That person would then work off their purchase price in his barrel making factory. However, in the basement of his church, he would then teach them how to read and write. Now that's significant because by Missouri law in 1847, there was a law against teaching blacks, mulattoes, and Indians how to read and write. And it was punishable by lashes and a public place, which mm. means a whipping post, okay? Incredible fine. So understanding then that he is running against the law by teaching them in the church basement. Several times um, he was shut down and then the Catholic Church took over and then, you know, they were threatened. And so this is what went on here, okay? And nobody knows that. When I think of all the people, you know, as a college professor for years and folks not wanting to show up to class, and I think what our people went through. If you only understood, yeah. if you only understood, this education would mean a whole lot more to you. Yeah. A whole lot more. So, um, when now to get back to Mary, when John Barry Meacham died, she lost the barrel making factory. Mm. However, she is still hooked in to the Underground Railroad. Because once those people worked off their purchase price, John Barry Meacham would take the legal action of legally freeing them down at the courthouse, giving them their freedom papers, and then using the Underground Railroad to get them actually to freedom. He didn't just say, well, hasta la bye-bye, hope you make it, okay? Yeah. He used the Underground Railroad to help them get there. Now, she's still plugged in, okay? Now, they own a farm in Alton, which is right there at the river, too, and all of this, I'm sure, helped. She had a sister over in Venice, um, which is a, one of the reasons why that's a point, uh, a crossing point. Now, I submit to you, we have no idea how many people Mary Meacham helped escape. We mm. only know about this one because probably number one, the important owners that were involved mm. and the fact that there were so many. Mm. Okay, so we, we have no idea. But I want you to understand too, what this woman was facing. Mm. With the fugitive slave law that was passed in, um, in 1850, the South wanted, um, there was one that was passed in 1793, but it didn't have a lot of teeth in it. And the South had been clamoring from 1893 to 1850 to get a really strong fugitive slave law. And they'll get it uh, in, in, uh, in 1850. This had to be, for, <laughs> well, it stood until, as the most heinous passage of laws until uh, the Dred Scott decision in, in, in 1857. But let me submit, let me tell you, give you some of the verbiage that is in the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. I'm downtown shopping for a pair of shoes. It's 1852. And some slave owner runs up, taps me on the shoulder and said, hey, I just saw my slave down on the levee and if you don't, and I need your help to capture him. You hate slavery. You don't even like people who like slavery. The law says all good citizens are commanded to help him get his property back. That is federal law. Aiding and abetting, which Mary Meacham was doing, is punishable by lashes in a public place, 
a fine that was equal to the cost of a small farm, prison, and in her case, because she's black, to be put into slavery. Did it stop her? Probably wouldn't have stopped me either. You gotta stand for something. What Malcolm X say, you'll fall for anything. All right, so going forward, the Civil uh, the Emancipation Proclamation is issued in 62, goes into effect in 63. Now I heard someone sitting here uh, before me and when he mentioned Fairgrounds Park, I perked up because now I'm gonna give you a tie-in. When the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, what it, really, what it said was now black men can go in the army. They have not been allowed in the army since the Revolutionary War to be able to be in uniform and to carry guns. By July 1864, or 63, there were 40,000 black men in Benton Barracks learning to become soldiers. And where was Benton Barracks? Fairgrounds Park. There were enslaved, enslaved men, free men of color, now we know about the induction center in Washington DC because Frederick Douglass was, was quasi in charge of that to get black men to recruit it, which his own sons did. But nobody ever talks about out here in the West. Mm -hmm. Nobody really talks about it. But the Civil War was brutal out here. Absolutely brutal, why? Because we had, there was a third front in the Civil War and it was a nasty one. It was called guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. This is when you get people like Frank and Jesse James, the Dalton brothers. These are paramilitary pro-slavery people. Mm -hmm. They would see a black person on the street snatch you and scalp you. Mm -hmm. Nasty stuff that went on here. But do you know anything about it? <laughs> I was doing research about 10 years ago, and I was at NARA, uh, National Archives uh, and Records Administration of Washington, D.C., and I pulled some of the adjutant general, which is the legal department of our Benton Barracks, some of their records. Now, what's interesting about this is that there is something original called red tape. Some of these documents had been when Benton Barracks was shut down. It was this vulcanized canvas, which means it had rubber on it, and it was sealed with wax, closing these. Some of these had never been opened since 64 when Benton Barracks closed down. But I found records in there, some things that just shocked me, that went, came to the Adjutant General's office where generals in the field. And why were they asking for Missouri? Because we were a black induction center. They were asking for troops. How did they put it? Um, disposable troops. They wanted several companies of disposable troops on their, uh, down in Tennessee, ASAP. That's cannon fodder. And I went to one of the country's leading Civil War authorities, and I read it to him on the phone when I got back to my hotel that night. And I said, dude, I wanna read you something. And total silence at the other end of the line. I said, hello, 
He said, where did you get that? I said, I got it at NARA. And I said, in books and had not been opened since 64. Next thing out of his mouth, they were all supposed to have been destroyed. Disposable troops, people. This has been our path. This has been our history. We helped them win it, but at what cost? Was our freedom worth the 200, over 250,000 black men that died? You might have to think about that for a minute. This is what it has been. Now, I was talking to Ms. Burns, um, and, and this comes up all the time. Um, my students, because I taught slavery for over 10 years at Lindenwood, and I would wait for this day because I swear I wouldn't bring it up until they did. And then when they did, they got hammered. Okay, and I lived for this. Somebody is going to say to me, well, there was slavery in ancient Rome and Egypt. That's all I needed. Yep, there sure was. There was slavery in black Africa. Okay, mm -hmm. but let me tell you the difference. Okay, first of all, lineage accumulation is why there was slavery in black Africa. Most of their captives were assimilated like Native Americans into the tribe. Okay, um, they were able to participate in all social activities. And in some of the tribes, slaves could own slaves. Slaves only meant that you were probably captured from another tribe, okay? It wasn't like you were inferior and like you're darker than me, okay? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't even like that. But what is the difference? 1662, Virginia Commonwealth, as they are codifying slavery, passed a law that stated the condition of the mother is the condition of the child. If the mother had been a slave or subject to slavery, then the child was also. What does that mean? For the first time in history, slavery is hereditary. Mm. You're born into it. So don't give me ancient Rome Egypt or anywhere else. Hereditary. Any comments? <laughs> I think we just kind of let it ride. Ain't got nothing to say. Slave law is a, a field of study into itself. It's something that you need to know. Let me give you another example. Okay. Uh, under the Spanish rule. Mm -hmm. And let me show you how confusing this all is. If you had been a black person, enslaved, born in, uh, in um, say, 1757 mm -hmm. here in the territory, you had been born under the French. Mm -hmm. Okay, the French were in control. Yep. 1770, by secret treaty between France and Spain, Napoleon was so busy with his wars in Europe, he didn't have time to pay attention to the New World. So he signed a secret treaty with Spain and said, look, you administer all of my, all, all the stuff in, uh, in, in New France, and you can have the taxes, you can have the, the money made off for trapping, um, just hold it for me, okay? 1770, now again, you were born 1857, I mean, 1757, you're only 13 years old when this happens. Now you're under the Spanish. Under the French, there was no mechanism for manumission. 
The French were the most paternal of all of the slave owners. Mm -hmm. It would be like a child going to your parent, turn to your parent and go, I don't like you anymore and I want a divorce. Okay. They're going, what? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, you know, they, they did treat them like family. They were baptized. They were married in church, blah, blah, blah. Okay. They weren't just enslaved. Mm. Not saying that it wasn't brutal, but it was a different mindset. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now we're under the Spanish. The Spanish don't control, don't condone slavery. They do have mechanisms for freedom. Okay. And they respect free people of color. You can buy your way out of slavery under the Spanish, mm. okay? Mm. And that's going to go here in St. Louis until 1803. Mm. 1804, Louisiana Purchase is signed. Mm. And in one day, Spain has to sign the land back over to France so France can turn it, sign, turn it over to the United States. In one day here in St. Louis, three flags flew over the city in one day. <laughs> so you have to understand. So the Spanish had a mechanism and black people prospered under the Spanish here. But we, you know, we talk about being a French city, our French heritage. Nobody talks about the Spanish heritage. Nobody. And I want you to know under the Spanish, the coin of the realm was not the United States currency but the gold doubloon and the real of Spain. Mm -hmm. 1803, morning that morning, sunrise, we're now part of the United States. Mm -hmm. And now comes racism. It is with the Kentucks, as they, use, as they call the people pouring in by the old National Road, courtesy of Daniel Boone, okay? Mm -hmm. That's why they call them the Kentucks. Racism was hit here like a hammer, okay? It is under. There was the territorial black codes uh, under the French, under the Spanish, but they were like, eh, more like suggestions, okay? <laughs> Spain wouldn't even help you get a slave back. You know, like you tell the authorities and they go, oh, really? Oh, man, that's too bad. <laughs> Hope you find them. <laughs> and that was it, okay? Under the, under the Americans, oh, my God. Black people can't ride horses down the street. You can't, more than three people can't be together. You have to attend uh, church services um, under with your, with your white owners. It goes on and on and on, okay? And this, the very land that we're sitting on, this is what happened here. Imagine the confusion. You go under three different country laws regarding slavery in your lifetime. And by all the time all this happened, you're only 33 years old. You're going, what? <laughs> so what, you know, but here you go. So under the Spanish, in 1799, the Spanish went down to Kentucky to convince Daniel Boone to come here. Daniel Boone was famous in his day. And the Spanish knew they needed settlers here. They needed farmers because they're having to import grain from New Orleans, Orleans just to feed people here. Mm -hmm. And so they need farmers. So they go send a delegation down to Kentucky to convince Daniel Boone to come here because they know, you know, Americans are going to follow. And it, and it is. I mean, he brings over hundreds of families up here. But he wanted one thing. He was an iconoclast. He didn't really like land. He was broke most of his life, okay? But he wanted one thing from the Spanish, and that was to become lawgiver, okay? 
Um, and it's called syndic is the, is the Spanish word. And they said, okay, so you're too old to remember the old Danny Boone series with him holding court underneath some tree by, you know, outside. This really did happen, okay? You know, if, if my cow got into your garden and ate up everything, then you could bring suit against me and he would listen to the case, okay? Because um, we're talking colonial problems, all right? Mm -hmm. Now, Daniel Boone is syndic on the western side of the Missouri River. The syndic for St. Louis, where, where the people were and the commerce was, was a black man, Jock Clay Morgan. We're talking about a black man that had economic and social parity with the famous Daniel Boone. He is syndic, he is lawgiver here. For how long? Uh, well, that's really interesting. Um, until he didn't want it anymore. Okay, I'll put it like that. He had a lot of different ambitions, okay? And a lot, I mean, he had a big fur trading company, he was buying land, he was doing a lot of things. Now, Jack Clay Morgan was a <laughs> heck of a guy, okay? Jack Clay Morgan didn't have his first child that he was 69 years old by a woman that, <laughs> what that he owned. Mm. And, in, and in the next four years, he's got four kids by three different black women, okay? Mm. Um, and <laughs> I was talking about the laws, and I'm coming back to that, why the, under the black codes this is important. Jack Clay Morgan, once these women, he freed them when they got pregnant. So now, under law, right, condition of the mother. So the mother's free, the child's free. Oh, wow. Not so much, okay? Wow. Not so much. Because what did that law actually say? The condition of the mother is the condition of the child. If the mother had been a slave or subject to slavery, then the child was also. They had been slaves. He freed them. This is a pass-through liability. The kids, depending on who the owner is, could say, nah, I freed you. I didn't free your chariots, okay? Now, there's two different manumission documents. I know I'm confusing the hell out of me, but you have to understand it. Manumission is freedom by document, okay? Jack Clay Morgan freed each of those women. Depending on what their document says, and he was lawgiver, he would know the law. That document would say, I, Jack Clay Morgan, am freeing the body of Angela Da Silva from now and future servitude to me, my heirs, and asides. Who did he free? The mama. The body. Second manumission document. I, Jack Clay Morgan, am freeing the body of Angela Da Silva and future heirs from, uh, from, uh, from all future servitude to me, my heirs, and assigns. Who does that document free? Me and future issue. That is the document he provided to the mothers. Now, when each of their children were born, Jack Clay Morgan sold the children, his children, mm. to their mothers mm. for a dollar. Mm. Now, why would he do that? It's a transaction. The mothers needed a bill of sale mm. to prove 
ownership. Transaction, yep. We were property. So the mothers being free people and the Missouri and the law just said only free people can be slave owners. Mm -hmm. The mothers being free now have a bill of sale that they own this child. Yeah. They can go down and file freedom papers for the child. He was smart enough to put that extra layer of protection for his own children. And why was that? Because this is one of the richest men in the city. And anybody who could have controlled his children would have controlled their wealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a gem. That's a gem. Oh, my God. The Why of My City captures and documents pieces of black history through written word and art while training the next generation to become active, engaged citizens. Our goal is that programs become a force multiplier, rippling into families, schools, and neighborhoods, offering solutions to common urban problems. The Why of My City, a play written by Mario Farwell with St. Louis Story Stitchers and directed by Gregory Carr, will be staged for the public June 15th and 16th, 2023 at the Dot Zach Theater at Cransburg Arts Foundation in the Grand Center Arts District. Tickets are on sale at Metro Tix. St. Louis Story Stitchers, The Why of My City is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Visit on the web at arts.gov and by the Missouri Arts Council, a state agency which receives support from the state of Missouri. The Why of My City is supported in part by Missouri Humanities Council, a state agency which receives support from the state of Missouri. Story Stitchers is supported in part by the Lewis Prize for Music's 2021 Accelerator Award. The mission of the Lewis Prize is to partner with leaders who create positive change by investing in young people through music. Additional support for Stitchcast Studio and Story Stitchers programs is provided by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund, City of St. Louis Youth at Risk Crime Prevention Grant of 2023, Trio Foundation, Deaconess Foundation, and the Arts and Education Council. St. Louis Story Stitchers and the Center is supported in part by Cransburg Arts Foundation as a resident organization. Thank you for listening. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers.